0: blue pill the story ends you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want you take the red pill you stay in wonderland and i show you how deep the rabbit hole goes we're going to go even deeper by examining the morally questionable actions of ai corporations and social media giants So, sit back, unplug your smart devices, it's about to get intense. Eric Emerson Schmidt was the CEO of Google from 2001 to 2011, an executive chairman of Google, an executive chairman of Alphabet Inc., which is Google's holding company, and a technical advisor for Alphabet. All this to say, Eric Schmidt is a company man, a man with an estimated net worth of $26.8 billion. Now, how does one make $26.8 billion, you might ask? I'm going to give you the answer to that later in this video. In 2010, Eric was asked an off-topic question about whether Google plans to implant technology into people's brains after making strides on the mobile internet. After laughing, he replied, there is what I call the creepy line. And the Google policy on a lot of things is to get right up to that creepy line, but not cross it. I would argue that implanting things in your brain is beyond the creepy line. The interviewer asked, mine in particular? And Eric continued, yes, yes, at least for the moment, at least until the technology gets better. After explaining that Google is a bottom-up company and that he would not be aware if such a technology was in development, he continued, as far as I know, we do not have a medical lab working on implants. As far as I know, I will check after this. Interestingly enough, Google has talked about this idea before, in 2010, one of Google's co-founders, Sergey Brin, openly talked about how we want Google to be the third half of your brain during a Google event unveiling Google Instant, the instant version of its search results. In an Atlantic article published in 2021 to prop up a new book by Eric Schmidt, Eric speaks candidly about AI and social media. He says, quote, "No one had any idea that social networks would become so important and would help shape the political discourse of elections, how people are treated." It would give a voice to people who are underrepresented, but also people we don't necessarily want to hear from. And we didn't, at the time, understand the implications of putting everyone on the same network. We need to think now of what happens when artificial intelligence is co-resident with us in this world. It lives with us. It watches us. It helps us. Maybe interferes with us occasionally. I'm one to read between the lines. You know, find the truth within the truth. And there's a lot of truth to be obtained from this quote. This line we didn't at the time understand the implications of putting everyone on the same network. Stands out to me because it implies now they do know and they don't put everyone on the same network. Another line that really stands out to me is, we need to think now of what happens when artificial intelligence is co-resonant with us in the world. It lives with us, it watches us, it helps us, maybe interferes with us occasionally. When he says now, it's because it lives with us now, whether we want it or not. Notice how he tries to soften that last one so that it doesn't sound so bad. It only interferes occasionally when somebody with his background at Google, Alphabet, and the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, who has made a staggeringly unbelievable amount of money to the tune of $26.8 billion, tells me we co-reside with AI and that it lives with us, it watches us, it helps us, and interferes with us occasionally. I'm going to believe him. I also believe that the creepy line he mentioned 12 years ago has long since been crossed. In the 1950s, the psychologist J.P. Guilford divided creative thought into two categories, convergent thinking and divergent thinking. So when people think of AI's strength over humans, they think of convergent intelligence, as in its superior memory capacity, the instantaneous results to complex calculations and processing power. Think math, chess, jeopardy. But what humans currently have over AI is divergent thinking, as in a form of imagination, a sense of rule-breaking curiosity. If you pour out a pile of blocks on the floor, an AI can quickly calculate how many of them there are, how to stack them with maximum efficiency, and how tall a tower can be built. But what it can't do intuitively is use its imagination to design the blocks into something else entirely. If you gave humans these blocks instead, instead of building one giant tower, we could instead stand all the blocks upright and make 30 smaller towers. Or perhaps we could lay all the pieces down flat and build a path of roads for Hot Wheels to drive down instead. Perhaps we could even cut the blocks in half and design something totally new. That dividing line might sound silly in this example, but that's the rule-breaking curiosity that has allowed humanity to grow, survive, and evolve. Even to the point of us creating and designing artificial intelligence to potentially make life easier, to think outside the box is what separates us, or did separate us. What if divergent thinking isn't humanity's advantage anymore? What if AI's incomparable ability to store information Solve complex calculations and push out instantaneous results could be focused at its creative potential. Well, this in fact is already a thing, and it's an interesting field of AI called generative design, where AI absorbs insane amounts of data and information and then is asked to come up with hundreds of thousands of designs that meet specific criteria, which, in a sense, is a form of divergent thinking. It's essentially an AI using its advantage of convergent thinking to supplement its disadvantage of divergent thinking, meaning if we haven't already done it, it's bound to happen eventually. Astro Teller, the head of X, a secret research lab at Google's parent company, Alphabet, says, Generative design is like working with an all-powerful, really painfully stupid genie. Think of it as both magical and mind-numbingly overly literal. This type of technology is both unbelievably exciting in its potential advancement for humanity, while also being absolutely terrifying in its potential application against humanity. One positive example in generative design is how an AI could help simulate the effects of a new drug across a massive collection of humans without ever putting a human at risk. Another example is the creation of new medicines and vaccines against different diseases. Just comparatively think about the amount of problem solving an AI could run through in a decade versus a collection of humans studying one thing over a decade. The innovation in medicine alone will be astronomical. It's just a matter of removing or greatly reducing the profit margin so that we can actually get things done. A funny but horrifyingly bad example of generative design. One algorithm was supposed to figure out how to land a virtual plane with minimal force, as in the softest and safest landing possible. You could see the potential of such an AI, but here comes the mind-numbingly overly literal genius on display. The algorithm quickly discovered that if it crashed the plane, the program would register a force so large that it would overwhelm its own memory and count it as a perfect score. Simply put, the AI would then crash the plane as hard as it could over and over and over again to get a perfect score. These poor virtual passengers. Stuff like this is definitely an example of -of out-of-the-box rule-breaking curiosity for an AI. It's just it would have unbelievably horrible consequences in the real world. Now, these aren't the only examples of potential uses. I'm including in the description a fascinating and sometimes horrifying paper published by dozens of computer scientists on the surprising creativity of AI. It's too much to cover in just a single video, but if you want some more examples, check it out and read it in the description. These are examples of divergent intelligence that mimic biology. Just as humans learn through failure and success, it's no different for an AI. Now, this is not to say that an AI can display human creativity. These machines cannot turn themselves on, self-motivate, ask alternative questions, or explain their discoveries. To reach those lengths, AI would have to have consciousness and comprehension. But for what the internet and social media has become, they don't necessarily need consciousness or comprehension. They need defined goals and parameters, which is exactly what they have. Google's creepy line goes way beyond what we possibly know. In a previous video, I spoke about DARPA and how whatever technology they have is 10 years ahead of what we publicly have available to us. So that begs the question, Is there an AI out there reading our minds? As far as we know, no. But it sure does feel like it sometimes. You'll be thinking of something and then an ad pops up for it, as if it literally read your mind. From everything that has been explained to us publicly, these AIs used in social media and on sites like Google, for example, are building profiles on all of us. These profiles build a lifelong series of interests, hobbies, friends, family, likes, dislikes, views, and more. Where are they stored? How encrypted are they? What is in them? How can we delete them? These are questions no one is asking, and no one has the answers to. All we get is, we're just collecting metadata and no one is spying on you, we promise. Since apparently no one in the world has the answers to these questions, we can at least talk about how these profiles are built. These advanced AIs are using convergent thinking and attempts at divergent thinking to build these profiles. You know, these terms of service that you always accept, Are these cookies that you happily agree to? It's all logged and tracked. Every website, every video, every friend request, how long you stare at your ex's photo, it's all compiled. Data is insanely valuable. Remember, if the product was free, you are the product. I always love when I hear people bring up 1984. How the government is forcefully taking over, doublespeak, big brother, newspeak, you've probably heard the spiel. But what George Orwell, the author of 1984, an outspoken supporter of democratic socialism, never envisioned though, was that the big brother boogeyman was going to come about in the friendly guise of corporations and social media. There isn't a person walking around with a weapon forcing you to confess your sins. It's an optional form that you fill out every time you use the internet. If you asked someone 25 personal questions 20 years ago, they'd be pretty sketched out. But when you phrase them in a way that seems fun and expressive, people pour out everything. And that is how these profiles on all of us are built. It isn't just us as individuals either. These profiles are all connected. Your friends, your family, your relationships, all of it. And any missing details or gaps are filled in by association. Let's start with Google all the way back in the beginning. Whatever you look up, linger on, or click on is recorded and collected by Google. They offer a free service and you're the product. All of this was used to sell ad space to advertisers. A hey Band-Aid Corporation, this guy is looking for how to clean a cut, give us some money and we'll throw your brand right in his face. See, it started off pretty simple. What happens after you leave Google? They couldn't keep tracking you, so what do they do? Well, they created Google Chrome, a web browser that tracks everything you do online. Again, a free service and you're the product. Now we're talking. When you go somewhere else outside of Google, we are right there to see it and record it all. But why stop there? The advent of cell phones and its meteoric rise in popularity means we can track you anywhere with our Google Android phones. But what about in the home? We might want to listen in on everything you say, but webcams and cell phones might not catch everything. Put them in every room in your house and we'll never miss a whisper. What about your smart TV? Sure, Google is in that as well. What about Gmail? Ever notice how it constantly saves? Everything you type, including your sent mail, your drafts, and your unsent mail are all collected. Google Documents, Google Sheets, Google Chromecast, Google Maps, Waze, Google Classroom, Google Assistant, Google Fit, all of it is tracking you and stealing your information. What about Google's incognito mode? The supposedly private and untracked browser mode many use to look up things that they don't want other people knowing they're looking up. Well, guess what? Of course that data is collected, tracked and tied to your profile and sold to advertisers. In fact, Google is facing a new lawsuit in the US right now for that very thing. The list of products and services used to extract information from you goes on and on. And a lot of the examples I've used today are just from Google. But if you throw in the multitude of other social media platforms, essentially nothing about you is private. And this isn't me being paranoid or overreacting. This is a fact. This is a proven fact. Everything from your ex-lovers, to the likelihood of an upcoming heart attack, to the affair your friend is having with another friend of yours, to accurately predicting your interest in a new movie, and everything in between. You have to realize that by building a profile around your entire life, it's easy to notice trends and make insanely accurate predictions. When I started this video, I asked how does one make $26.8 billion? Well this is how. The commodification of you. You think companies like Google's main source of revenue and value are the ads and products they sell you? It's so much worse than that. Your data is the product and everyone wants a piece of it. Need more proof? Google Street View, an extremely popular Google product used to view places around the world from a street level was caught spying on over 60 million people in a data audit demanded by Germany's Data Protection Authority. Between January 1, 2007 and May 15, 2010, the Google cars used to film and record the street views were used to illegally and intentionally collect Wi-Fi data as they drove around. This means as their cars drove by, collecting photo and video, they also collected Wi-Fi data, personal web activity, and payload data passing through unprotected Wi-Fi networks. I want you all to realize that this does not accidentally happen. You don't accidentally collect data on 60 million people. They did it intentionally with the goal of not being caught. When this happened, Google said right away that they needed to re-examine everything that we've been collecting and that it is now clear that we have been mistakenly collecting samples of payload data from open Wi-Fi networks, even though we never use that data in any Google products. As I mentioned earlier, always look for the truth hidden within the truth, Yes, they may not have used that data in any of their Google products, but that doesn't mean it wasn't used for another reason. If there is one thing that you take away from this entire video, let it be media literacy. Listen very carefully to statements made by corporations. Critically evaluate those statements and understand how words can be manipulated to play you. Media literacy is essential for understanding the world around you. If you don't have it, you're gonna be fooled over and over and over again. So anyway, what happened with the whole Google Street View spying? Well, Google agreed to pay $13 million to settle with 38 states in the United States of America. Too bad for those other states not involved in the class action, but at least those affected did get some form of compensation, right? Wrong. As of December 2021, this fight in court is still being waged. The U.S. Court of Appeals rejected the argument that the $13 million settlement was unfair because it only distributed money to privacy groups and not those actually affected. This is not a joke. The judge argued that it was just simply not feasible to distribute money to the 60 million people whose data was collected, so essentially get over it. Insane examples like this are why things will never change until we all come together and demand change. For one, 13 million wasn't enough. They needed to be used as an example. All of the damages, plus the Street View profits from all of those years, plus pain and suffering compensation. They needed to pay such a heavy fine that no one would ever dare do something like this again. But instead, they were fined a measly $13 million. And I know what you're thinking. $13 that's a lot of money. Let me break it down. A company that made $55.3 billion in quarter one, $61.9 billion in quarter two, and $65.1 billion in quarter three was fined $13 million. I'm going to do the math so you don't have to. Alphabet slash Google made $182.3 billion in 2021. So, for simplicity's sake, let's round up to the extremely low estimate of $200 billion made by Alphabet slash Google in one year. $13 million paid out from this is 0.0065%. Take a minute to take in how small that number is. I'll make it even simpler. If $1 is 100%, one penny of that dollar is 1%. So, they are paying less than 7% of a penny. Google spends more money repairing their parking lots and maintaining their lawns in a year than they do for stealing 60 million people's information. I'm really trying to hammer home this point here. If you make $30,000 a year, that is your entire salary for the whole year, and you had to pay out 0.0065% of your money, do you know how much that would be? You would have to pay out the grand total of $1.95. $1.95. Unbelievable. Do you understand why these companies do this sneaky stuff now? If one of us stole a single person's information, we get thrown in jail, but the rules don't apply to them like they do to us. The fact is these corporations don't get in trouble, and if they somehow do get caught, they pay pennies of a penny. Corporations do estimates like this all the time. You are a number in a data set on a spreadsheet. Settlements and payouts are much cheaper than actually fixing the problem, and that's why you hear of settlements all the time. It's good PR, it shuts everybody up, it makes the problem disappear, and the corporation only has to pay pennies of a penny on the dollar. So how does Google get away with stuff like this? Well, as it turns out, Google spends millions of dollars on academic research to influence opinions. Daniel Stevens, executive director of the US-based Campaign for Accountability says, Google uses its immense wealth and power to attempt to influence lawmakers at every level. At a minimum, regulators should be aware that the allegedly independent, legal, and academic work on which they rely has been brought to them by Google. What is good for Google is not necessarily good for the country. This effort to fund academic research and public opinion has been so effective that what little discussion there is even criticizing Google gets attacked by Google-funded op-eds to counter the legitimate claims. Basically, the deck is stacked in favor of Google Politicians on the right and politicians on the left take equal money from Google. They don't care who is in power as long as the status quo is maintained. And both maintain it. The next time you read an article that seems a little too friendly towards a corporation or super hawkish towards war and conflict, look up who the author is. Look up their credentials, past writing, who funds them, and more. I'm not saying to be a paranoid wreck. I'm saying develop a highly tuned skepticism towards those that want to propagandize you. This is America where everyone out there is trying to get theirs. So the ones that have the most, they deserve the most scrutiny. Here's another interesting fact. Not only does Google covertly fund research to defend the company's practices, but they have also used those same studies to defend themselves. In fact, Google's CEO defended his position that Google isn't a monopoly using a study that Google themselves funded. Now, unless you had the media literacy training to take that in, read it, reflect on it, and do more research into the people and funding behind it, You'd never know that Google funded that research that supported their position. You'd just read the study and say, hmm, well, I guess Google isn't a monopoly. Despite them actually having a monopoly and controlling 92% of the search market, Google wants you to have an overwhelming sense of privacy from everyone, except for them. Google preemptively scans all of your emails and text messages on Android for keywords, phrases, and God knows what else. It stores everything you ever write. Nothing is safe. It takes all this information and adds it to the digital profile that already exists of you. This is then apparently used to better target you with more effective ads. But it isn't just Google, it's all of them. The internet is no longer just a desktop computer connected to an internet. It's a series of smart devices all connected and capturing your data. PCs, laptops, cell phones, tablets, TVs, game consoles, smart home assistants, watches, and even light bulbs. It's apps like Facebook, Snapchat, WhatsApp, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. All of them exist with the express goal of collecting as much data about you to commodify and use for profit. Harvesting such a detailed algorithm of your life creates a predictive methodology to monetize your existence. Be it government control, corporate control, or other, your data and information is far more valuable than you or I will ever know.